I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll take up where we left off last week. We'll study verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is very near contextually to the Apostle Paul's consideration of the indwelling sin that remains in the Christian. And so as we press forward, Paul will continue to consider the state of the Christian. And so friends, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. May he give us blessing, comfort, and conviction to live and to walk according to the example of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, you speak, and the mountains melt. And Father, we pray that you would, in the ministry of your word, be at work in all of our hearts. Oh Lord, bring us low. Oh Father, we pray also that you would help us to be a people who would cling to our Deliverer. That we would behold Jesus and the full act of his atonement. O Lord, the great depth of his groaning on the cursed tree. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Christian, do you ever feel afraid of God because of your sin? I'll ask the question again, and I encourage you to study what I say and how I say it and to whom I'm speaking. Christian, do you ever feel afraid of God because of your sin? When I say afraid, I don't mean just in general the fear of God, but the Bible encourages all Christians to behave within and to experience the ministry that it has for us. The fear of His holiness and His righteousness. The fear of His greatness, His immensity, His eternity. His unchecked power, His everlasting justice. All of those things are necessary for the Christian. Furthermore, the fear that you might lose fellowship with Him and have distance from a Father and a God who loves you. Those are good things. But I'm asking you as Christians, are you 
afraid of him because of your sin. Afraid of what God might do to you because of what you have done against him, even though you are a Christian. You're born again. And yet, in your sin, you still daily struggle. And you fail. And you offend him. And you provoke him to his face. And do you ever, at the end of it, at the close of the day, as you put your head on the pillow, simply tremble, afraid of what he will do to you because of all of your sins and all of your failures? Do you worry God is going to take away my salvation? Do you worry because I have sinned, He's then going to turn against me and send me to hell? And do you worry that He's going to have nothing to do with you? And that on the day of glory, as you meet Him and He's seated upon His throne, that He will look on you and point a finger at you and condemn you? Plenty of Christians are afraid of exactly this. If Christians weren't afraid of this, there would never be an issue of assurance of salvation. If Christians weren't afraid of this, they wouldn't have crises of faith. They come to elders and pastors or fellow Christians and they simply say, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And when asked the question why, they simply say, because of the sin that I'm still engaged in and that I haven't had victory over. They're afraid of what God will do to them. They're afraid that condemnation remains even for those who have been saved by the free grace of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is addressing that this morning for Christians. Because what did we study last week? The remaining indwelling sin that has not been conquered in the life of the Christian. And you had Paul and he struggled within himself not understanding his own actions. He doesn't do the thing that he wants, but he does exactly the thing he doesn't want to do. He cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And so he touches on this terrible reality of Christians who find themselves afraid of the condemning eye of God. And so, in four verses this morning, I want you to hear... Three spectacular truths, Christians. This is to Christians. In verse 1, you are not condemned. Verse 1, you are not condemned. Verse 2, you are now free. You are now free. And then in verses 3 and 4, 
He was condemned for you. He was condemned for you. As we come to verse 1 of chapter 8, I need to remind you that Scripture has context. I see this all the time, every week, because we're studying through books of the Bible. But in verse 1 of chapter 8, it is even more apparent because the third word in the English translation is, therefore. So what he's going to say depends on things he has recently said. It is a logical progression. And so I encourage you as we consider the wonderful truth, you are not condemned in verse 1, that verse 1 is in the light of chapter 7, really the whole of it, and chapter 6 as well. But there are two things in chapter 7 that give direct context and meaning to verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 24. Just look back, just look up on the page. After Paul has considered all of his sin and his struggle with it as a Christian, he's overwhelmed and he almost shouts to the Lord, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He sees his sin and he sees its offense and he knows its wickedness and he feels its chains and he knows his own failure and so he shouts in the depth of it, Wretched man that I am. It's the conviction of sin in a Christian life. The wretchedness that it commits to us. As if in a realization of our sins, we see ourselves in a horrible, desperate situation. That's the first piece of context that gets us to chapter 8, verse 1. And then the second is verse 25. Chapter 7, verse 25, immediately following. Wretched man who will deliver me from this body of sin. And then in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He sees his sin nature. He sees his sin actual in the things that he's done against God. Cries out for deliverance, and he then sees Jesus, the deliverer of sinners. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, we have therefore. For the Christian under the conviction of sin. So again, look at chapter 8, verse 1. It's wonderful truth announced for you and for me and for any who will have faith in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you ever told your testimony as a Christian? 
I have a lot. A whole lot. My testimony begins whenever I'm very young. The age of some of these little ones in the pews. In fact, I would say it really begins in the cradle, being a child of Christians. But in my own personal awareness of my sinful state at a very young age. But I hear other people speak about their Christian testimonies and not all of the same. People have diverse lives. People have walked and lived in 500 different ways. Nothing all that unique about them, but nonetheless. And there's something I've noticed, and that is that Christian testimonies, almost inevitably, almost always, they focus on past sins. And whenever a Christian hears, often, Romans 8, verse 1, they think about not being condemned for what they once did. Or maybe you think that and you think about the condemnation that you don't experience for what you did back whenever you were really, really bad. Back in the day before you were walking with Jesus. And you may have a testimony that would make most of us blush a little bit or make us a little bit nervous. That would shock us. And it is wonderfully true that the gospel is in every way a testimony that there is not condemnation for past sins, for the sins of your former life, for whenever you were living in ignorance of the word of God and rebellion against the Lord of glory. But that's not what this verse is about specifically. It is about now. In the Christian life, as you walk and live and fail in sin as a Christian, there is therefore now in the midst of your life no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is so desperately important for you to hear, Christian, that the cross is not simply a thing that was accomplished for everything that you once did in all of your old failures, and now you're moving on because at moments in your life you may be given for the temptation to think, well, I've progressed in all of those old sins. Those are done and those are gone and I'm free from all of those things. But in my experience and the testimony of the Bible and also the testimony of other Christians, there is always this terrible reality that we have thorns in flesh that are now still present in the life of the Christian And if the cross is only something that dealt with everything back there, then for you, if you don't see the cross now, then you think that is something you have to deal with or else you have condemnation from God now, even in the Christian life. And so a misunderstanding can unseat faith and overturn a former former and powerful testimony. What is there now no more of? There's now no more condemnation. Condemnation is peculiar language. It gets thrown around today to almost mean nothing. 
people say he or she condemned me and what they really mean is I have terribly thin skin and I'm easily offended by a whole variety of things. He corrected me and I felt condemned and that's not what condemnation is. In the biblical understanding of condemnation, this is legal language. Chapter 8, verse 1, you enter the courtroom of God. Condemnation is the language of justice being carried out. Condemnation, in simplest terms, is when a verdict or a decision of a court and a judge is then announced alongside just punishment. Condemnation is the sound of justice being carried out against an offender for the defense and the keeping of those who were offended or of those who are otherwise innocent. It's formal language. It's not throwaway language. And it's filled with meaning. You should understand that as a person living in a world that desperately needs justice, condemnation as a legal act is actually good. It's not bad. Condemnation brings the clear standard of God's personality, His perfections, His holiness, His righteousness, and His law. And it applies it specifically to the offenses to the rebellion and the failure of the hearts of His creatures. And so we might say that an offender, a criminal, has been condemned and their condemnation, when it's read as sentencing, maybe they've been condemned to years in prison. Maybe they've been condemned to millions in fines. Or maybe in worst circumstances, condemned to death. That's what condemnation is. It's legal. And so what is what's Paul saying to you, Christian? To the Christian who struggles with sin, who continues to break the law of God, who continues to offend God, and who feels the guilt and guiltiness of his sinfulness. Paul is saying to you and to me, Christians, that right now, before God, even in the face of your sins, there is no condemnation for you and for me. God does not read an angry, wrathful verdict against you. He does not now sentence you for your current, your constant, your besetting sins to condemnation, damnation, punishment, destruction, hell. But why? Because you are in Christ Jesus. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And you need to hear that, Christian. And I'm going to explain it in further detail in just a moment. But you just simply need to hear this. You are not condemned even for the sins you still struggle with right now. That does not excuse your sins. That does not confirm you to continue living in it. Those are offenses to God. Those indicate a hard heart. They may indicate an unconverted heart. They deserve punishment. They deserve condemnation. But what Paul is saying is that if you are in Jesus, united with Him, a member of His body, beloved, that you will not have condemnation brought against you for the things you struggle with and you fail. Right now, where you are, In your life. This is the gift of grace. You have been delivered from the condemnation of God. By Christ Jesus. Because you are united with him. And you may. As a rational thinking logical person. See it. And you've already asked the question. About the gaping hole. The problem in verse 1. Pastor, we've heard that this is legal language. We've heard that this is the language of justice. But how can this be? Where's the justice in an offender not then being punished for what they've done? How can it possibly be just? How can God be good? How can He be a good judge, a righteous judge, a holy judge, if He looks down from His stand on offenders and says, Well, just forget about it. We'll move on. You might say, well, that's kind of alien. But put yourself in a courtroom. Put yourself on the other side of the aisle. You're not the one on trial. You're the one who's been offended. And you look and you say, that person, they murdered my mother and my father. And you're just going to let them walk out of here with nothing? No condemnation? It's a big question. It is a problem if we don't explain anything about the justice of God. How can this be? And so friend, as I brought you to that question, I want to ask that you hold on to it for a second. I want you to keep it in your mind. Don't forget it. I'm going to remind you of it in just a second in this sermon. But hold on to it because that's not what Paul is addressing in verse 1. He is simply saying to you loudly and clearly that if you have faith in Jesus, you will not be condemned for your current failures. You are held in grace because you are united with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So hold on to the question. We're going to come back to it. In verse 2, the second truth you need to hear, you are now free. You are now free. Look at verse 2 with me. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. So here Paul is looking at the experience of the Christian. And at first one was about justification. And a person 
is not accounted guilty nor punished for their sins, then verse 2 has to do with the lifestyle or the experience of the Christian under sanctification, or the person's progressing in faith or living to put sin to death and to live after God. And he has this strange and I think often confusing turn of phrase in verse 2. He expresses to us this idea of two laws, and one of them I think we can guess at. It's pretty simple. The law of sin and death. We've been talking about law. We've been talking about our inability to keep the law. We've been talking about the effect of the law. There's not anything wicked within it, but wicked in us. So we can't keep it. Then it accuses us. And so that's relatively clear. But then this other law, the first one he mentions, the law of the spirit of life. Have we heard about that so far? These two laws, and so I want to encourage you to think of these two laws as two rules or two authorities, if you will. Who is it, what is it that directs your life as a Christian? That's what's being addressed in verse 2. Who is it or what is it that directs you in your life as a Christian? And Paul says that the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Christian doesn't live under the authority of the law that they cannot keep. It doesn't mean that the law has no meaning for you or that it doesn't direct you. The law certainly does. We've already talked about this at length, that the law holds up the holy heart of God. It shows us His character and the things He delights for us in our lives. It shows you that you're a sinner. It shows you that God is holy and that He does punish sin. And it teaches you how to live after God. It does all of those things. But the reality of it is, is that it does not save you. Doesn't set up a rule for living, as it were. A rule for your deliverance from death. There's a different law. And that's what Paul is saying to you. It's the law of the spirit of life. What spirit is he talking about? Certainly talking about the Holy Spirit. The minister, the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, the friend that Jesus said he would send. The one who takes what is Christ's and declares it to you and to me. The Holy Spirit has a role in the life of the Christian like a law, like an authority to direct us how we should think, how we should live. How does this play out in the life of the Christian? Well, it can be in a real variety of ways. In the removing of scales from the eyes so that we read and understand the Word with a heart of faith and a mind being renewed. It can also be that the Holy Spirit makes intercessions for us with groans too deep for us to manage before the ears of God. All the time interceding for us. Leading us in faith that He is simply 
always whispering our name in the ear of Christ, that Christ would intercede as mediator to the Father. There's also the ministry of the Holy Spirit that sometimes you and I can just think of some indwelling conscience. Where there's conviction for sin and the teaching of Scripture is then pressed to our hearts and we feel overwhelmed with conviction and sorrow because of our sin. And so we think on Christ in love and we want to turn away from sin and live after Christ in freedom and in life, hating our sin, putting our sins to death, and following Him in obedience. And friends, I think that last proposal to you is unique, and it is what Paul is speaking about in verse 2, at least. That you and I as Christians, yes, still in sinful flesh, yes, still struggling with sin, yet free from the condemnation of sin, that the Holy Spirit constantly, steadfastly, and with authority speaks the truth of God, not only into our minds and our ears, but into the hearts of Christians to call us to live after Christ in Christ. Because what have we already heard about the other law? That it commands us to do things we can't do. That it puts a bar so high that we can never leap to jump over it. But now here by the work the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there is freedom to walk after Christ Jesus. Freedom in union with Jesus to live a holy life. And so what am I saying and what do I think Paul is saying in all of this? Well, it is, well, somewhat simple. Christian, you have a new authority in the person of the Holy Spirit. And you have help as you struggle with sin. It's not only that things are being required of you that you can never rise to, but you have one that constantly sets you free to do the things that delight God because you have been saved by Christ. And you remain in Him. Don't look at sin as being a continual, constant, overwhelming, undefeatable, impossible slave master that you will never be free of. But know that in Christ there is real freedom, not only from the guilt and the punishment of sin, but also its power. You're free, Christian. And now we come to verses 3 and 4. And the Apostle Paul has this truth that he wants to tell to me and to you as Christians. He was condemned for you. He, Jesus, was condemned for you. And you remember as we studied in verse 1, and I encouraged you to follow me down the question of the problem of verse 1, of 
how can I not be condemned? If God is holy and God has a just hand on all of his creatures and all of the things that they do, then God's justice must be done. If he is righteous, if he is good, if he is holy, God must punish sin. He must punish me. My sins must be punished. Or else he's not holy. He's not good. He's not right. And he does not maintain justice. There is undealt with wrong in me and in my life that has not been ultimately put to rest. That's the big question. How can it be that I'm not condemned? And the answer is simply, Jesus was condemned for you. Jesus was condemned for you. Verse 3, for God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh could not do. What was the law intended to do that it couldn't do? For you to live holy and righteous like God. For you to be reconciled with God. For your sins to be dealt with. For you to live in a life of obedience. That's what the law was intended to do. And Paul is telling us in verse 3 that God had to do what the law couldn't do. And where was the problem? Was it with the law? Was it a wicked law or hard rules? No, it was you and me. It was our flesh. The law wasn't the problem. We were the problem and remain the problem in our sins. Not able to take the law and to live after God in a way that we ought to in ourselves. You go on. And he tells you how he did it. How he did what the law could not do. Well, it was by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He took his eternal son and he made him as one of us. You may be reading this and you get tripped up. The word likeness. And you think to yourself, what does this mean? That he was like us but wasn't one of us? No, that's not the case at all. I think if you read Paul clearly, it's in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's protecting us from the conception and the mistake, the false teaching that God wrapped Jesus in our sinfulness. From the false teaching that Jesus took up our brokenness in himself. That Jesus in himself was born in sin because he wasn't. Rather, it's his, in our likeness or in the fullness of our humanity. Let me put it in those terms. That God took his eternal son who has always been with him, always at his right hand. Through him, all things were created and nothing that was made was made apart from him. He took that one, God the Son, the eternal and second person of the Trinity, and he wrapped him in our humanity. Why? So that he could condemn sin in the flesh fully. So that the requirement of his justice could be satisfied. So that God's holiness and hating sin and punishing sin would be fully poured out and not an ounce of his wrath would or could remain. 
If God punishes you for your sins, you deserve every ounce of it and even yet more. There is a reality that our frame in human, in human form deserves all of the wrath of God to the point where even if it were to be fully poured out upon us, we would be entirely consumed and the wrath of God would continue unsatisfied and His justice still held out. And what Paul is saying is that he sent his son and condemned him in the flesh, in his humanity, in our place. How is it that you and I are not condemned for our sins? It's because Jesus was condemned for you. How is it that God's justice is not still held against you for the sins you still struggle with? It is because all of His condemnation was put upon Jesus. All of the wrath you deserve and I deserve was completely poured out on Him. Think of it as a cup of wrath, a poison cup placed in the hands of a prince. Who drank every single drop. And so the way that Paul can say to you with absolute confidence. And to me. Even about our current sins. That you are now not condemned for the things that you still struggle with. It is because Jesus took all of the wrath of God against you. And there is nothing left. There's nothing that remains. God's justice is satisfied. There's no condemnation left. There is only the adoration, the pleasure, the love, the grace, the compassion that is given to sons and daughters in the heart of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may ask the question, how can I live now not... Against the standard of the law of sin and death. We'll continue on reading. It's not only that his wrath has been poured out. But it has been for the reason, verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus experienced all the condemnations that we deserved. And that the law would hold against us for breaking every one of its points. Not only did he do that and experience all of its pain, but he has given to you all of his obedience. He hasn't just dealt with all of the wrath of God and all of the justice of God, but all of God's requirement for you to be holy and to be perfect as your Father in heaven is. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. How? It's in Christ. It's in His obedience. It's in His free gift. And in His work. And you have that by faith in Him. And being in union with Him. It's yours. All of the punishments of the justice of God. And the wrath of God according to the law. Completely poured out and done. 
and all the righteous requirements of God for the Christian life completely fulfilled in Jesus' obedience and life for you. Christian, when you think about your life and you think about your sin and you think about your struggles, are you afraid of being cast out and condemned and hated and cursed and punished? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. And he has called us to walk according to the, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. To be people who walk in faith and under the ministry of God, the deposit of our salvation, the Holy Spirit, living a life after Christ. And in the freedom that can only be had through his death in our place and his free offering of himself to us by faith. That's what you have, Christian. And that is what is freely offered to every single person if they would have faith in Jesus Christ. It is not you must save yourself, but he has died and has saved you from yourself. Let us pray together. God in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus, the Lord for his cross, the Lord the work that he has done. That Lord, there is not still a verdict out against us, that there is not still punishment. Oh Lord, there is not still wrath and anger in your heart against us. There's no reigning and remaining condemnation of us, even in our struggles, even in our failing, even in our falling over, in all of our offenses. But there is redemption and deliverance in Jesus. There is a ministry of the Holy Spirit where day by day we're taught to walk not according to the flesh, but according to faith in Christ and according to the ministry that he is having even now in us to put sin to death. Oh Lord, and to give us new life. Our Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.